0: On air, online, on digital digital. and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Coming up today, keeping a close watch on unwanted pests like fruit fly.
2: We have fruit fly surveillance running pretty much all all year. So we, we have a number of traps across urban areas, um, and fruit growing districts, um, and we, we get samples from those all year, and then we have our warmer season surveillance programs.
1: And the
3: young farmer following
1: organic practices in North Tasmania.
3: I reckon there's less
2: work in organic
3: farming than conventional, especially with that's with blueberries. Blueberries are relatively pest-free, in, especially in Tassie, with if you have a deciduous variety, you get a bit of grass growing under the, underneath, and we top top them up with wood chips and pine bark.
1: Yeah, producing the blueberries organically and keeping the unwatered pests at bay. Those stories coming up on this final Monday in February. G'day, Tony, with you on a day where we also look at the expected price increases in dairy products and the shortage of workers as well. Also a view from one UK farmer on the rollout of electronic tags for sheep and goats. And after the weekend garlic festival at Cunha, a garlic story of a different kind from central Australia. All we'll that and more coming up, plus a check on the weather and your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Let us know what you think. 0438 922936, that number 0438 First up today, a shortage of workers is impacting Australia's dairy industry, according to a market analyst. And while there's pressures on the industry to expand production, labour shortages are holding some businesses back. Dairy Australia's Industry Insights analyst John Droppett has told Fiona Breen while dairying is positive, there are some issues holding the industry back.
4: Demand for dairy has been really robust. Um, you know, consumers have been facing uh, some pretty significant inflation um, certainly over the context of the last 10 years where prices haven't changed very much at all you know dairy prices are up 15 percent over the last year in the supermarket which is you know huge and and yet we're still seeing dairy you know dairy's walking off the shelves people are still putting in their diets you know still still buying things like flavored milk um you know like some of the the you know probiotic yogurts and things that you know are probably more discretionary so people want the product uh people globally want the product um as you say, supply has uh, been slow. There's, of course, we've had the shorter term issues around floods, uh, but we've got some of the more medium term challenges around, you know, around staffing, um, you know, around succession, and those pathways into the industry.
5: Do you think prices for dairy will continue, continue to go up for the consumer?
4: I think there's probably a little bit more uh, inflation to come through. If You've if you talked about that 15% uh, increase on the supermarket shelf. That compares with you know a, a 30% increase uh, this season and, and another five. Uh, percent last season for farm gate prices so if you think about all the you know all the players in the middle they've been squeezed um, over the past season and of course you know farmers are are paying much more at the farm gate for their purchased inputs as well and so it sort of stands to reason especially with the milk pool contracting that um, some more of that is going to get passed through to the consumer as you know this whole kind of commercial equilibrium works its way out over the next year or two.
5: Have you noticed any drop-off with uh, price increases in terms of consumers?
4: Volumes have dropped slightly, um, but certainly not uh, not to any great extent. I think consumers are pulling back a, a little bit, but m- more what they're doing is they're making more conscious decisions. So they'll buy you know, block cheese rather than sliced cheese, for example, you because know, when, when, when money's tight, you can cut the cheese yourself uh, sort of thing. You can, you can forego a little bit of convenience just to uh, save a few dollars here and there. Um, you know, of course, private label um, at times like this does, does see an increase in share. Uh, but again, overall, the situation has been pretty robust for dairy consumption so far.
5: What do you mean private label?
4: So home brand products, uh, you know, as opposed to the, uh, you know, the, the name brands that people are quite familiar with.
5: And they're not always Australian uh, made, or, or not always got Australian milk.
4: Not always. Certainly, in the case of, of liquid milk, it's you know, virtually all Australian. There is some uh, some UHT from New Zealand, but the vast majority is, is Australian milk. Um, yeah, when it comes to branded products, um, or when, when it comes to private labels, sorry, you, you do have a mix of uh, of Australia, New Zealand, and, and and other origins as well.
5: What do you take out of the current season and the way forward in terms of uh, uh, looking at where we're going?
4: I think where we're at now, we've got a lot of really robust farm businesses. So, you know, farmers have certainly had their challenges with input costs and, and and you know, not to mention floods, uh, natural disasters. But you know, on the whole, farm finances are in pretty good shape. So yeah. I think there's a lot of farmers who you know, have been able to rebuild some of that, some of the financial um, damage that's been done over the, you know, over the preceding period. So I think it's really, it, it, it's a where to from here kind of season. I think, and, and um, there's, there's probably a lot of businesses out there where people are, are looking at well, what what is the next step. You know, do we stay where we are? Do we um, look at growth? Uh, of course you know the, the global situation is so unpredictable at the moment with uh, what's going on in, in Ukraine and uh, you know potentially closer to home and you know in, in the Pacific um, there's, there's still a lot of things to, to take pause for and then you've you know you've got the labor situation as well so a lot of people probably being pretty contemplative this season I'd say about you know whether they whether they take a risk um, you know in
5: time for action according to Rabo Bank
4: time for action well it's easy, it's easy to say that when you when you're um, uh, when you're not making the decision yourself, isn't it? I mean, it's the you know, for, same for me or for, for any sort of service provider, um, you know, for a person taking on the financial risk themselves. Um, I can understand, especially you know, after the time we've had in dairy, um, why, they would, uh, why they would want to run those numbers extra carefully. And, you know, interest rates are going up, of course, along with all the other things I've mentioned. So. Um, Uh, I think the fundamentals for dairy are very positive, uh, but I can certainly see uh, why we've got a a very sort of conservative mindset when it comes to business expansion.
5: Just getting back to picking up on one of those issues you mentioned finally, and that's the workforce. It's been a big thing for dairy. They're really struggling, aren't they?
4: Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's been a challenge for for dairy and for agricultural industries for, for, for several years and then covid um, you know, really amp that issue up, and I think now if you walk around any any country town and, and probably you know many suburbs, you'll see help wanted signs everywhere. So it's you know dairy's not just competing with other industries, it's competing with you know the whole economy at the moment for uh, for staff. So I think it's a uh, it's a real pinch point for a lot of farmers that that might otherwise be expanding um, for a lot of farmers that. Uh, are poised at that decision of, well, do I, you know, do I sell while my cows and my land are worth a lot of money uh, or do I keep going because I'm making a decent margin? And I think in some cases, labour issues have been the deciding factor there because, you know, there's only so much you can, uh, so many hours you can put in, even if, you, even if you are making good money.
5: So are we at a crossroads with dairy, some big decisions to be made?
4: I, th- I think we're at a really interesting period. I mean, it's, it's, you know, every day is a crossroads in some respects, but I think we're at that period where um, there's a lot of factors at the moment almost acting in different directions and there's yeah you've got you've got some really positive economics but at the same time a lot of risks on the horizon Uh, we've got an industry that uh, has drifted in terms of milk production for a while and and I think um, you know has to decide what what sort of focus it wants to have Um, and and, you know that was touched on uh, by Joe and Steve from Fresh Agenda yesterday in the conference Um, you know do we want to be domestically focused do we want to have an export presence Um, how do we interact with those markets around us
1: dairy Australia's industry insights analyst John Dropper chatting there to Fiona Breen about some of the challenges for the dairy industry, including the labour issue. Some farm groups are worried about the extra cost involved with the new mandatory electronic tag rollout for all sheep and goats. A survey from the farmers in New South Wales estimated 80% of farmers there are not using the technology. The lobby group says the $20 million package from the Commonwealth won't be enough to help farmers meet the 2025 deadline. So how have other countries adapted to electronic tags for livestock and are they worth the extra money? One advocate for the technology is Matthew Blythe, a UK-based lamb producer and independent advisor. He's currently in Australia as part of the Nuffield Scholarship. He's speaking here to reporter Josh Becker.
6: In 2010, we had to go over to compulsory ID in sheep. We're not there with cattle at the moment. Um, and it's all down to traceability from um, us having foot to mouth. Um, after foot and mouth, we realised the sheep weren't traceable and cattle was. Cattle was traceable through, we have a paper passport, which sounds really bonkers these days with modern digital technology. But it, we're talking from the, um, I think it's the early 90s or late 80s, I think, pa- cattle passports came in. But in the sheep industry, we had nothing. So the only way the government in Europe could work out that we were
7: going to be able to trace anything think, was using... Low
6: frequency electronic tags.
7: Through that process, now every sheep has an EID tag. What are the attitudes amongst farmers about uh, the cost-benefit relationship of of tags in the UK? Um,
6: To start with, like all farmers, change. We don't like change. So yeah, everybody was anti it. I was physically using it on the farm I was on well before it came mandatory because I saw it a way of understanding and driving a business. Most farmers were anti it, but it was, came rather quickly, they grew into using them
7: and saw that actually there was a cost on the business, but actually it wasn't such a major cost. What are the different ways you're managing the farm based on the data you're getting from the EID tags?
6: But what I discovered rather quickly using the breeding pairs and matching stuff up was um, certain genetical lines um, were giving me better 8-week weights, and I believe 8-week weights are one of the biggest drivers in our land production. Um, so seeing how well the ewes are milking, how well they're milking off certain pastures, locations. We discovered one part of our farm was majorly cobalt deficient and we actually discovered actually giving four different products actually doing nothing was probably the better option. Sire wise we started working out what size we'd put three rams or five rams from a producer the same age rams all were on the same sort of EBVs in with the group and follow them through to scanning and because we were lambing indoors and outdoors and we're doing lambing rounds which i know in this country you don't do we were able to pair the ewe to the lamb with no problem at all getting about 95 to 97 percent success rate we could work out which sires were weaning the most amount of lamb. So we took up our weaning percentages from 1.2 tonnes per sire up to 4.5 tonnes per sire of weaned lamb.
7: As you're travelling around and looking at EID implementation across different countries, uh, what are your observations looking at Australia and and, um, attitudes you're hearing from farmers you're chatting to?
6: Every farmer, New Zealand, Australia, France,
7: wherever I've been,
6: can see the positives in collecting data. Nobody's anti that. What everybody doesn't understand is how to collect it, what to do with it. There seems to be, and the UK is exactly the same, there seems to be a massive shortage in training, understanding, pulling everything together. And there definitely seems to be its interest. I was on a farm not far away from here. I was getting told exactly the same story. They get told the software company, blame the hardware company, and there's a disconnect. And that's where my new role's really coming in, of pulling those two together. Most farmers are really busy, and they haven't quite got the time. But once they're trained and understand how to collect this information, it becomes second nature.
7: When you talk about the cost-benefit analysis of EID, what's the biggest... um problem that people raise with you around the cost or or, um, you you mentioned already the the challenges of using the data?
6: I think the biggest cost benefit we forget about and when I started this journey on my Nuffield I hadn't even dawned on me. Why are you looking at bringing EID in? Because you're scared of foot and mouth which I totally agree with you, you should be. You're scared of a disease outbreak and not tracing it. If that disease hit this country you have lost the UK market. You've lost your world market. Your farmers then will be on their knees. So that's the biggest cost benefit that we don't see. But also the bigger cost benefit is, once you get your head around it, is how you can look at your business. If you go and look at Amazon, Google, whoever, they're processing data to work out what we want in front of us, ads, this, that and the other. Why don't we do the same thing for our livestock? work out what suits them, what works for them and actually tailor our businesses to make them work as efficiently as, as Google and Amazon do for us.
1: As Matthew Blythe, UK-based lamb producer, independent advisor and 2021 Nuffield scholar. Talking there to Josh Becker about the electronic tag program for sheep and goats. Still to come on The Country our new chair for the National Fruit Fly Council.
6: Nominations are now open for Farmer of the Year with 10 categories spanning all ages and stages of life on the land. Let's recognise the hard work of our rural leaders, innovators and farming legends and celebrate those in our rural sector who go above and beyond. You can enter yourself or someone you know at farmeroftheyear.com.au. Entries close this Tuesday. Proudly
8: supported by the Kandinen Group and ABC Rural
0: it's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: 0438922936 that text line number if you'd like to say good day 0438922936. Well, with the lots of fruit and vegetable crops in the swing of harvest, it's a busy time for the surveillance of unwanted pests and diseases. Jamie Davies is team leader for entomology with Biosecurity Tasmania. He had a chat with Larissa Smith about what pests are on the radar and how the public can do their bit to help.
2: We have a lot of samples being submitted this time of year from various sources, members of the public, um, biosecurity operations um, and surveillance programs.
9: Talk me through some of those surveillance programs happening at the moment and those key pests of importance that Tasmania needs to be across.
2: Sure. Um, So we we have fruit fly surveillance running pretty much all all year. So we, we have a number of traps across urban areas um, and fruit growing districts um, and we, we get samples from those all year and then we have our warmer season surveillance programs um, mainly through the National Plant Health Surveillance Program and the National Bee Pest Surveillance Program so uh, this year we're doing surveillance for exotic ants a pest called Spotted Wing Drosophila which we don't have in the, in the country. This year we're, we're also collaborating with the Department of Health and um, the uh, Animal Health within Biosecurity Tasmania for uh, mosquito vectors of Japanese encephalitis.
9: Will all of that surveillance differ between each pest?
2: Uh, yes, so um, the fruit fly surveillance uses pheromones in a, in a pheromone trap. Um, it's quite an extensive grid. Whereas other, other surveillance programs are a bit more targeted. Uh, spongy moth, for example, we're just doing surveillance around the ports, which are the higher risk areas. Uh, for spongy moth, it's Bell Bay and Hobart. The, as part of the National Bee Pest Surveillance Program, we're doing surveillance in yeah, Bell Bay, Hobart, Burnie and Devonport. And um, yeah, other, other pests, it's, it's it dependent on where the risks are, like, like tramp ants, or exotic ants uh, in uh, ports, as well as um, we're, we're looking in importing facilities um, as well.
9: How tiny are these ants?
2: Uh, pretty small, anywhere from um, about a millimetre um, in size to, to about three millimetres, so yeah, pretty small.
9: Are they established elsewhere in the country?
2: Uh, so there's eradication programs going on for some of these ants in other parts of the country. We're, we're actually surveying for multiple species, so um, red imported fire ants is, is an example, which, which uh, there's a, an eradication program going on in Queensland at the moment, has been for a couple of, uh, number of years.
9: You mentioned varroa mite. There was a big ramp up in surveillance in Tasmania over the last six months. What's the state of play there?
2: After the New South Wales detections, um, we started doing surveillance in areas where beekeepers had received queen bees from some of the, the eradication zones in, in New South Wales. So we've, we've got teams that have that have been looking, doing alcohol washes on on hives that have received queen bees from, from New South Wales. Is
9: it starting to wind down now, that intensity of that surveillance?
2: Uh, yes, so the, the surveillance teams have looked at most of those um, apiarists that have received queens from New South Wales and unfortunately um, no detections.
9: How helpful have the public been in contributing specimens for you as an entomologist to, to rule in or rule out that it's a it's a pest threat to uh, Tasmanian biosecurity members of the
2: public are really helpful um, following the the fruit fly response in 2018 um, we received a lot of a lot of samples from members of the public and, and photographs as well for us to, to screen um, for, for fruit fly um, but yeah the public Public generally are, are really helpful and um, do submit a lot of pests and photographs for us to, to look at to, to rule out biosecurity pests.
9: So, how do you tell if it is a pest?
2: Well, some of the photographs are of common or, or not so common insects that are commonly found in Tasmania, and we can uh, usually identify from the photograph. If we can't, we um, We request a specimen and when the specimen comes in we'll go through those specimens uh, using uh, morphological keys um, which are in the scientific literature to identify the pest and we we know from our pest list whether that pest occurs um, within Tasmania or not and whether it's of concern and if if it's too difficult or it's a juvenile form um, sometimes we'll use molecular testing to determine what it is.
9: Because there are some class A pests out there like the, the marmorated stink bug, spotted wing drosophila that look very similar to say vinegar fly and there's, there are stink bugs in Tasmania but not of the marmorated variety so it, yeah. is, it can be a bit confusing sometimes.
2: Uh, look it can be very confusing and um, we, we use uh, like identification tools to basically rule out brown marmorated stink bug and um, usually identify identified as one of our local species the only thing I want to add is just to encourage members of the public to to uh, report anything they see that might be unusual and um, either take a photograph or contact us to 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 um, get a sample submitted yeah just in case it's something of biosecurity concern the um, emergency plant pest hotline if you put it into a search engine the, um, the phone number will come up
1: Jamie Davies, Team Leader for Entomology for Biosecurity Tasmania, talking there to Larissa Smith about some of the measures to protect Tasmanian agriculture through pest surveillance. And Jamie talked quite a bit there about the strong measures taken to ensure there are no incursions of fruit fly, probably the biggest concern for Tasmanian fruit growers. Fruit fly is in the news with a continuing outbreak in the Riverland and the announcement the National Fruit Fly Council has a new chair in John Webster who will attend his first meeting next month. The news comes as the Fruit Fly Council plans a national symposium in July in Adelaide. Council's next regular meeting in March will be discussing the latest Riverland outbreaks in South Australia and bringing efforts in line with a national strategy. John Webster discusses his priorities with Anita Ward as he enters the role.
10: And look it is a uh, it is a new role for me and I haven't had the been involved yet with the first meeting of the council so uh, I'm very interested in in hearing their priority but I guess the the key priority for the council itself is facilitating a national approach to the management of fruit flies and and within that there's the area of freedom from uh, exotic fruit flies there's minimizing any incidence and spread of the, uh, the the ones we have here at the moment and then of course having a national system to uh, to support market access so there look there's a they're the major priorities, but at the Council, uh, the main priority is, is facilitating that national approach to addressing those problems.
11: And, of course, it is so localised to each region, you know, that does have fruit fly outbreaks. How do you feel about the Queensland fruit fly eradication efforts in South Australia's Riverland region? Yeah,
10: like uh, I'm not in a position to, to evaluate what has been happening in the past. Yet, Anita, having, uh, as I say, literally having not yet sat down for the first meeting of the Council... But well, I'm I'm absolutely confident from my earlier life involved in this that every jurisdiction is is absolutely aware of the importance, but also uh, aware of, of the significant challenge in in trying to achieve that. And I know I just I absolutely also know how important it is for the Riverland. I mean, yeah, particularly with citrus down there and the importance of exports and and exports being underpinned by you know, the area of freedom. So it's. It's of vital importance to uh, to the people in your area.
11: Yeah, so what, what sort of background do you have and what experience do you bring to the Fruit Fly Council? The, the council is full of
10: experts on fruit fly, so I, I don't uh, suggest that I, I bring more expertise than they have. I have been involved all of my life in, in agriculture. I was the managing director of Horticulture Australia, so uh, in that role, working with all the, the horticulture industries to address the major issues. And, of course, Fruit fly was one of those then, but that was back 2000 to 2008. So, um, And I've been involved in market access for many, many years across multiple commodities and understand the, uh, both the complexities but also the importance of industry and government working together to, to make these things work. It, it, it requires this collaborative approach, and that's why I guess I'm so excited working for the, with the council because their role is to bring in, as I said before, to facilitate that national approach on what is a, a major challenge.
11: Uh, and in South Australia, as you touched on, you know, fruit fly being um, such a, a big problem in the Riverland currently, what will you do uh, as the council? Or perhaps it's something, you know, you, you don't know yet, but what are your hopes um, in terms of assisting state government efforts, the South Australian government, in its eradication program?
10: yeah i think the the key again there anita is that it, it, it has to be a national approach. I mean, these flies just really have no respect for, for national jurisdiction or state borders. So it does require that national approach. And we'll have both the, you know, the South Australia and the Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria, all the all the relevant people around the table, uh, and everybody will be aware of the importance of uh, of maintaining that area of freedom for the Riverland. So it's, it's it'll be. It's, I'm absolutely confident for that first meeting it's, it'll be a major priority to be to be looked at. Uh,
11: you know, a national approach um, does that work for for different regions that do face different challenges, places like South Australia that have, you know, maintained that pest-free status for such a long time until the, the last couple of years?
10: Yeah, no, no. You're, look, it's, it's a national approach, meaning it's collaborative, but you're absolutely right that there'll be unique uh, opportunities and unique threats in, uh, in each area. So no, it doesn't suggest that everything is done exactly the same everywhere, but it, it does suggest that what happens in one area can have an impact on others, and, and working collectively is, is a much better way to uh, you know, to address the problem. But it's not to suggest that it's a one, you know, one size fits all at all. It'll be very different in different areas.
11: Absolutely. Um, sterile insect technology is one that's uh, really been focused on in South Australia at the moment, and uh, we've recently seen the state government commit to a doubling of those sterile uh, insect that will be dropped from the skies and continue to be over the Riverland. Is that something that you've found to be successful in the past or or what sort of other eradication efforts, um, you know, that that maybe aren't being deployed could be in in South Australia?
10: Yeah, again, I'll I'll, I'll bow to the experts of uh, of the council when when we come together, but I'm certainly aware of the the SIT program and the importance of it. It's tried and true, but it's just one, if you like, one arrow in the quiver and uh, you have to not only try to uh, address things so on farm you've, uh, you know, you minimise the impact, but you've also got the effort then on how you manage the product while it's on board ship, etc., going to export markets. So there's a whole whole range of activities that have to be addressed, and it's as, as I say a coordinated approach across all the jurisdictions if it's if it's going to be effective.
1: That's the new National Fruit Fly Council chair John Webster speaking with Anita Ward about his new role, which begins next month at a meeting of the council. And they've got a national symposium in July in Adelaide to talk about that dreaded pest that we all love to hate in Tasmania, the fruit fly. Coming up, organic blueberries planting garlic in central Australia and we'll check the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Ellie
12: Ward. Thanks, Tony. Dozens of people are still missing in rough waters off Italy's coast after the sinking of a boat carrying migrants. About 60 people are known to have drowned. At least 12 were children. Officials fear the death toll could top 100 since some survivors have said the boat had as many as 200 passengers. The Tasmanian Greens have described an attempt by a major fish farmer to block the release of a report on its use of antibiotics in Fish pens as a grotesque failure of regulation. The state's Environment Protection Authority, says TASSAL, tried to prevent the publication of a report on its antibiotic use because it considered it to be commercial in confidence. Director Wes Ford says until changes to le- legislation late last year. He had no power to release reports on the use of antibiotics in fish farms. And an immunologist says there could be a slight benefit to holding off getting a COVID-19 booster shot until next month when a new Omicron-specific vaccine becomes available. Adults who haven't had a booster or a confirmed case of the virus in the past six months can now get another jab. For bulletin at one.
1: Time now to check the latest on the weather. And Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke.
13: Hey Tony, how are you going?
1: I think I'm all weathered out by the weather. It's doing yeah. all sorts of things. It's doing everything at the it's, moment.
13: It's quite, it's quite weathering at times, isn't it? It, it does. Uh, it's, um, yeah, thankfully, it looks like a, a pretty, pretty settled week after the excitement that was all, all the heat towards the end of last week, and then uh, all the. Basically, we had the fires on on Friday and Saturday, and then the floods on Saturday night. And I think the locusts are due tomorrow at this <laughs> stage. But weather-wise, we should be pretty uh, pretty benign. Uh, we've got a weak ridge sitting over the state at the moment, with a trough lingering through Bass Strait. Going to get our next cold front on Wednesday morning, but then back to ridge-dominated weather for the remainder of uh, remainder of the week. So what that's looking like, uh, we'll see uh, a few showers. Uh, clearing away, if they haven't already, from the far south and, and south-east of the state. And then this afternoon we'll see some showers develop about the north-east and then extend across the north during the evening. Tomorrow there'll be some showers about northern areas uh, and then fine elsewhere, apart from some showers developing about the west and south. Between now and... You know, end of tomorrow, we could get around 5 to 15 millimetres of rain across uh, much of the north and northwest, west but, um, you know, mostly about high ground, less than 5 millimetres elsewhere. So not, not a great deal. The cold front on Wednesday will briefly extend showers to most areas but then quickly contract to the west, far south and northeast east uh, during the morning, looking at around 3 to 8 millimetres into the west and to the northeast and less than 2 millimetres elsewhere. So relatively dry compared to uh, Saturday uh, night, in terms of uh, rainfall we had, Tasman Islands recorded 58.4 millimetres Saturday night into Sunday, and that was a uh, a February, February record, I think. Uh, yeah, February record. The previous February record was 35, about 35 millimetres, so it nearly doubled that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, yeah, it's the most rain at Tasman Islands since uh, about end of March 2021.
1: How many you know, people annually. live there?
13: Oh, there's probably a couple of birds, a couple of gulls. But right, right. that would imply that the Taz Peninsula would have got a, a bit of a, a, a decent drenching. Yeah. Um and indeed the uh, the heavy or heavy rain did occur elsewhere in the state, but that was the most impressive number. Nugent ended up with thirty eight millimeters uh up to nine AM This morning, so it must have got the tail end of the event yesterday.
1: Yeah. They're getting quite a mention uh, lately, Nugent. you never used to mention when it came to rain, but now we mention them pretty regularly.
13: Yeah. Why is that? What's happened? I don't know. I'd have to look up how long we've had the uh, the site. It must just be um, well-sighted. Yeah, cops a lot of rain, not as much as copping.
1: Yeah, yeah, good one. Um, (laughs) Midweek... The the cooler change, how cool is it going to be? What what sort of temperatures?
12: Uh,
13: cold. It'll certainly feel cold compared to the the low to mid thirties we had last week. But it doesn't look like we'll drop too low. Probably still see most days uh, in the week ahead uh, above twenty degrees. But only just. Looking at a top of nineteen in Hobart today. But the the next couple of days looks like uh, twenty and twenty one. I reckon we'll be relying on the afternoon sunshine to to warm us up though. Uh, thankfully it's not looking terribly windy so you know even though it'll be slightly below average temperatures it's not going to be too bad and uh probably a fairly nice way to start march on on wednesday with a, a cold front and mild conditions
1: yeah as we formally bid farewell to summer for 2023 mm. and go into autumn
13: yeah it was a wild couple of days there wasn't it
1: mm. interesting yeah. um now what have we got uh warnings have we got any no. of those
13: No warnings today or tomorrow. We could potentially have some coastal strong wind warnings on Wednesday with that front coming through, but we'll we'll wait and see till we get there. In terms of wind out on the coast at the moment, variable to around uh, 10 knots about the central north, although south to southwesterly 5 to 15 knots elsewhere, increasing to 15 to 25 knots about the northeast and the northwest. Tomorrow southerly 5 to 15 knots, variable about the far south, tending northeasterly through Bass Strait. And winds will be changing southwest to northwesterly during the afternoon and evening. The swell at the west and south. Today and tomorrow, there's a west to south-westerly around three metres across Bass Strait. Uh, through the north, we've got a westerly to one metre and uh, the east coast has got a southerly one to one and a half metres today and tomorrow as well as an easterly below a metre uh, during the course of tomorrow. And uh, significant wave height on the west coast right now is 3.8 metres off Cape Sorrel and on the east coast, we're looking about 1.7 metres significant wave height off Mariah Island.
1: We've got some uh, really spot on Listeners out there, Wall from Bruny Island says 56 mil at Simpsons Bay on Bruni. Thanks for that, Wall. Yeah. 56 mil.
13: They, they would have copped. <laughs> I would have copped it there. See, there's a copy reference again. They would have got a lot of rain down that way as well as the the came up behind the, the, the weather system that brought us that change uh, on Saturday. I'm so. um,
1: barely coping with copping. Uh, Jamie <laughs> says Jamie says 32 mils at Woods Woodsdale. There you oh, go. Yeah. yeah. Where's Woodsdale? It... Should I know that? Woodsdale. Yeah. Wood... Someone will tell me. Jamie, tell me where Woodsdale is. I'm trying to think. I haven't been there before. All right, Luke, I that's it.
13: To Google. It's uh Woodsdale is Yeah. Oh yeah, Inland of Tribuna it looks like.
1: Of course. Hmm. We knew yeah, that, didn't we?
13: Near Levendale. Okay.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Luke Johnston. All right, thanks. See you, mate. Right. Luke Johnston from the Bureau with all the information for you on the Country Hour. Uh, coming up for you shortly, we'll take you to uh, Central Australia where uh, they're planting garlic, big Cunha garlic festival at the weekend. I hear it, uh, it went pretty well for them as well. And we'll take you to an organic berry farm in just a moment.
8: Lucy Brader, back on your drive commute. So
12: what... Is going on
8: Asking the questions you want answers to
12: And what needs to happen
8: Discussing Tasmanian issues From our
4: schools This kind of behaviour has no place in schools
12: And are you talking about parents
4: Yep, parents To tackling problem plants
12: Agapanthers
4: In unique ways Um, A
8: blowtorch works well Lucy Braden, Monday to Thursday from 4pm You
0: learn something new every day
8: On ABC Radio Hobart
0: Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania.
1: Now to a story about a very busy young man from Bridport. Stuart Millwood's interest in horticulture started when he was 16 and growing his own bonsai trees. A full-time fitter and turner at Bogue's Brewery, he now has a blueberry farm in his repertoire. When he was 24, he heard it was especially lucrative, so he purchased 500 plants and has never looked back. Our reporter Madeleine Rojan dropped into the property at Bridport to talk about the blueberry
3: orchard. Between the two properties, this is the original one, so we've got 1,200 plants here uh, and then on a new one we planted over the last sort of five years, there's about four and a half thousand out there, so yeah, she's a, um, a growing business, but I think that'll do us for a while, yeah.
14: Because it started as a personal hobby back in the day?
3: Yeah, it did. I was 24 and thought, oh, well, I'll just put a few plants in here and see how they go. And it all worked out and we've just continued to grow from there. But I think at the moment, because I work full-time as well, so um, it's a bit of a mission to keep everything ticking over, but this time of year is quite busy and we had a busy lead up to this season as well with a bit of new packing equipment in the shed. So there was... um, modifications to do to some of our old conveyors and stuff like that to feed this new machine so she's been been a busy few months in the lead up to this season and now we're um we're in the middle of it flat out so it's it's quite busy
14: um and so you're also full-time at james bogues brewery uh any plans to do a collab with with beer and blueberries
3: yeah oh, the idea has been thrown around a bit in there just between the boys, a bit of a banter, but um, I don't know. I think um, there's more chance of having a bit of a collab down here with the Bridport Distilling Co. We've been talking to them about a blueberry gin and soda can, pre-mixed drink or something like that that we'll use our seconds with. So hopefully that sort of comes to fruition.
14: Yeah, you've got a couple of varieties here um, of blueberries. Can you tell me what they are?
3: Yeah, so these... This orchard here is um, all brigida uh, and there's a few rows of juke which is an early variety on the ends uh, and our new, newer orchards brigida, legacy and Duke. so there's the brigida really benefit from the cross-pollination of the other varieties it increases the fruit size a fair bit which we can see out there at the moment the fruit's a lot uh, a lot bigger than some of the areas here especially in the middle of this orchard where the if you go to the outside rows where that's next to the rose the juke uh, the fruit's twice the size yeah
14: is there much of a difference in taste between the two varieties
3: yeah yeah there's well i can tell there's a big difference um the juke they're really they size up really nice and they've got a they're a, got that crunchy skin and a really mild flavor the legacy they get big but they're this a little bit softer in the skins, and then the brigida. These probably get the biggest. Uh, but you got to leave them a, a little while on the bush to really sweeten up, because otherwise the brigida can be a little bit tart. But you leave them and they ripen up, and they're really flavoursome. They're probably well, they're sweeter than the juke The juke are mild, but yeah, that's no, there's a difference in in all of them, which is good.
14: And it's all organic. Are there any challenges with uh, reaching all the certifications
3: i reckon there's less work in organic farming than conventional especially with that's with blueberries blueberries are relatively pest free in especially in tassie with if you have a deciduous variety um no, the main thing is with the you get a bit of grass growing under the, underneath and we top top them up with wood chips and pine bark and they're due for a bit of a top up the, after this season at the moment but no it's it's pretty easy, you get audited once a year they come down, look at all your picking and packing records, your sales records and they come and do a soil test every few years just to make sure you haven't applied anything but yeah, no, it's, it's all good
1: Madeline Rajan talking there to Stuart Millwood from Berry Blue Farm at Bridport and uh, there was a mini bonsai farm out the front of the property next to the kids' new playground which had been freshly assembled by Stuart, very busy man Good on him not-for-profit organisation AgSafe has been appointed to run a national recycling program for seed and feed bags that are currently going into landfill. An initiative of CropLife Australia and the Australian Seeds Federation, it won't be funded by a farmer levy but will result in an increase in product prices. AgSafe General Manager Dominic Doyle says bag muster will be modelled off the long-running drum muster scheme.
15: Uh, it'll run similarly to Drummuster, which is our chemical recycling program. Drummuster has most of its collections through waste transfer stations working with local government. We expect that Bagmaster will have closer linkages to the retailers. We're not talking uh, hazardous waste here. We're talking uh, product bags. Um, and so um, having those strong linkages with the re- uh, re- resellers will certainly assist in the collection process.
16: And what sorts of plastic products are we talking about?
15: So we're looking at bags that are product bags that are entering the agricultural input supply chain. So from 5 kilos up to 1,000 kilogram bulk bags. So the products range from granulated crop protection products, seed bags, animal feed bags and fertilisers entering the, the agricultural supply chain.
16: How about grain bags or silo bags?
15: At this stage, we're not looking at um, those specifically. There are some pilots that are running with Dairy Australia running uh, a silage wrap program. Um, And also the Department of Ag uh, is working on a non-packaging plastics recycling research project at the moment. So we are very aware that there is some other um, other um, alternative product stewardship initiatives that are actually in the pipeline in development as well.
16: Uh, so as you said, Drummaster runs mostly through the, the local teaport waste transfer station, yes. but Bagmaster it's going to involve farmers returning those bags to to where they bought them from.
15: Yeah, well, we'd like to be able to do a collect and drop off um, service, um, and that would be ideally work where we'd have hoppers set up in retail sites then to drop in the bags there as well. um, Long-term, it may um, also include um, sites alongside drum muster collection sites, which are in waste transfer stations.
16: Who's going to pay for it?
15: So um, AgSafe is self-funding the pilot, and we are working with um, CropLife and Australian Seeds Federation member companies to actually fund the program in the long-term.
16: Okay, so it won't be a farmer levy to cover it?
15: No, this will be a um, fee that will be um, charged at the uh, at the point at the point that the uh, products are entering the supply chain um, and it's part of the product price of the um, of the bagged product, unlike drum muster which is currently under an a triple C authorized levy. It will not be a levy per se
16: would you envisage though that the product manufacturers would just pass on that cost to to the farmers?
15: Uh, It will be included in the pricing of the product.
16: So the the cost to go up, do you know, for example, a a 1,000 kilogram bulk bag, how much the cost of of it would go up?
15: I, I can't make a comment on the actual cost of the program at this point in time.
16: Are the bags going to be recycled?
15: Yes. Um, we do know that there has been some challenges in the recycling market in Australia. However, uh, the Recycling Modernisation Fund, which has been set up by the Department of Climate Change, Energy and Environment of Water, means that there's a massive pipeline of infrastructure development that is happening across Australia at the moment and coming online in the next 12 to 24 months. We are very confident that the increased capacity Recycling capacity means that these products can be sustainably recycled in Australia.
16: So starting off with a pilot program, when's that going to start and where will it operate?
15: So we're looking at um, sites across Australia, including Victoria, but but also into South Australia and and New South Wales, uh, to do some pilots mid-year this year. Uh, We'll be looking at the retailers for them to host these sites in the first stages. And then we'll be rolling out during 2024
1: more nationally. AgSafe General Manager Dominic Doyle speaking there with Angus Verley about the National Recycling Program for Seed and Feed Bags, which are currently going into landfill. Uh, Glenn on the text line says, only 11 mils at Gilston Bay. We need far more for our garden. Good on you, Glenn. Thanks for that. Well, if you've never tasted a crisp, creamy macadamia kernel, or it's been a while, Australian growers say now is the perfect time to buy the native nut help them weather a global glut and savage price cuts. As Jennifer Nichols discovered, the industry is looking to drive demand and find savings and productivity gains in research.
16: So this is a long-term national breeding project. It was started off by CSIRO.
17: Standing in a research orchard between rows packed with closely planted trees, macadamia growers are learning how the money they're investing in research could assist them on their farms.
16: We want to end up with more profitable cultivars that's the that's the bottom line
17: professor bruce top leads the macadamia research program for the queensland alliance for food and agriculture at the maroochee research facility on the sunshine coast selective breeding is focusing on reducing the time it takes for trees to produce nuts growing nuts with larger kernels and thinner easier to crack shells and producing smaller hardier trees that cost less to manage.
16: The advantage of the small tree is that it allows for high density planting or planting at the same density but not having to do pruning as early.
18: Thirty years ago orchards started to produce nuts in year five and six and now we've got orchards that can produce nuts in year two and three predominantly year three and have commercial yields by year four or
17: five. As chairman of the macadamia industry varietals improvement committee Lindsay Bryan is a big believer in the benefits of research. Some of
18: the new varieties are producing nuts earlier in life so the cash flow is quicker for the industry and uh, we're getting higher kernel recoveries.
17: The nation's 800 macadamia growers are under pressure. The industry has been hard hit by a pandemic-driven dent in sales, rising inflation and supply outstripping demand. From a record high of $6.20 per kilogram paid for nut in shell in 2020, Farmgate prices tumbled to as little as $2.50 per kilogram late last year and are expected to drop even further. Australia's 2023 harvest is about to begin and a record crop of 60,000 tonnes of nut in shell has been predicted. Macadamia growers are bracing themselves for more pain in prices soon to be announced by processors, businesses that many of them also own stakes in as shareholders.
18: Yeah, some new entrants will, will struggle. They're probably over overcommitted and uh, not quite prepared for this. Yeah, They'll need to uh, work on their model to uh, sustain their productivity and, and work for the future.
17: Over more than 40 years of growing macadamias in northern New South Wales, Lindsay Bryan has seen it all before.
18: This has happened three or four times in the last 30 years. It's a cyclic price Rise and fall for purchasing nuts and a little bounce back and uh, people have just got to stick to the industry and uh, it'll return to better times again.
17: With macadamias representing less than 2% of global tree nut consumption, livelihoods are being staked on more people discovering how tasty and healthy they are. I think the important thing to remember though is that fundamentally it's a great product. It's a product which we need to generate a demand for and there are so many people in our domestic market and internationally that have yet to experience macadamia, so it's a huge opportunity. Claire Hamilton-Bates is CEO of the Australian Macadamia Society. We're in a period where not just in Australia but worldwide, demand is less than supply. Australia and South Africa produce 50% of the global crop followed by China, Kenya, USA, Guatemala and Vietnam the estimated 38,000 hectares of macadamias planted in Australia, 26,600 hectares have matured enough to bear nuts. Globally, tens of millions of dollars have been invested in expanding orchards and supply. There's a much greater and increasing supply of macadamia nuts. Yes, difficult times, but you know, the horizon and the future is still good. Concern over prices being paid to growers hasn't resulted in a rush to sell farms. Baden-Lowry works for Elders as a rural real estate agent in Bundaberg and remembers the panic when prices last nosedived. Because I've been here so long and involved in the market. I can
13: recall the uh, nut and shell price back in uh, 2007, 2008, you know, as low as $2.50, $2.30 a kilo back then.
17: And did you see a lot of farms coming on the market back then? Back then there was a lot of younger farms that, you know,
13: I guess people then started to panic, uh, not knowing which direction it was going to take. Uh, And obviously there was a lot of farms younger planting because they were basically investment driven. Yeah, There was a lot of younger farms that came onto the market, but within a 12-month period, the price did increase significantly and resulted in a lot of those
17: farms then being taken off the market. His Elders' colleague, Gary Martin, has sold farms between northern New South Wales and Gympie for 48 years.
10: A year or two ago, when commodity prices were at a peak of 5 to $6 a kilo, every second day we'd be getting a phone call from somebody inquiring as to whether we had any macadamia farms for sale in probably the last 12 months since the boil has come off those prices we've seen that inquiry drop dramatically and I would say that it's probably been a good six or seven months since I've had a phone call from anyone wanting to buy a macadamia farm even though the commodity price for the macadamias is down from what it was. I see no doom and despair. Those in the industry are still very positive about the
18: industry.
1: That's Gary Martin, a rural agent from Elders, ending that story from Jennifer Nichols about what's happening in the macadamia industry. Well, Cunha was the centre of attention at the weekend for the Garlic Festival. In the centre of Australia, a First Nations group have planted Central Australia's first commercial garlic crop. Indigenous men, women and children have been learning how to grow garlic in a trial over four years at a training farm near Ali Kurung. After finding out which garlic grows best there, the group have planted their first fully commercial crop. But as Victoria Ellis found out, the program is growing more than good garlic. It's also fostering pride, community and workplace skills. So we
8: sowed 300, about 300,000 so it's a tonne and a half for the hectare. Well, overall, there's going to be about a million plants in here.
0: The Alikarung Horticulture Farm is about 350 kilometres north of Alice Springs. It was established by Centre Farm Aboriginal Horticulture to provide training and employment opportunities for the local community. Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly are Elua women who have been working on the farm. Tisha says she's learned a lot while trialling the growth of different varieties of garlic over the past four years. Get to um, learn like learn, um, how to grow and how to prepare. Yeah, so it's been good learning on on the job. What sort of experiences had you had of planting and growing things before the garlic trials? Um, I didn't know anything about growing anything. Sabrina, what are some of the things that you have learnt over the last four years of the garlic trial?
15: What sort of fertiliser we have to use for the soil and also how much water we need
0: a day. The program has also brought the community together to work as a team. For Tisha and Sabrina, it's important because it's an opportunity to teach the next generation. Yeah it's good um, it's good like for the kids to join in because they get to learn, um, they learn growing fun. and food you know and what's healthy yeah. and yeah they're and growing yeah. this
10: is also part of the future yeah? Yeah. for the children to learn their children.
18: I'm Joe Clark. I work in Ali Karan community. We work for Centre Farm. Centre Farm was formed about 15 years ago, but uh, the project that we're planting garlic with, uh, it's a pathway, a clear pathway, so we can work our way out of poverty and um, get meaningful employment.
0: Joe is an Arunda man from Central Australia. He's the farm manager. He says the first years of the trial were hit and miss, but last year was good, and this year they're hoping to better their harvest again.
18: It is a bit exciting when you've got a semi-commercial crop ready to go and uh, if you would have told me that three years ago I would have said uh, yeah maybe but yeah it's, it's, it's exciting to see the younger people jump on the tractors, plough the dirt, lay the sprinklers and get an exciting three and a half hectares ready for garlic Australia. It, it makes my job worth, worthwhile coming up to work every day.
8: Well good luck guys let's yeah, fingers crossed. We'll have a lovely season. Hello, my name is Nick Diamantopoulos. I'm the CEO of Australian Garlic Producers. Usually, garlic is a cooler climate crop. This is um, our most northern crop. Um, all our other crops sort of start coming in late September, October. So, to be able to have garlic coming in in August and to grow garlic literally in the desert is quite unique.
0: What does that allow producers to be able to do?
8: Well, what it allows us, it allows us to go to market and extend our garlic season. So most other countries in the world, they, they actually harvest garlic for anywhere between three, four weeks, maybe six weeks maximum. But to be able to harvest fresh Australian garlic for a five, six month window is just pretty well unheard of.
0: And does that mean that Australians will be able to buy Australian garlic for longer durations of the year?
8: That's the idea. The idea is to replace imported garlic. And to have fresh Australian garlic all year round and with our diverse climatic conditions, um, we can certainly do that.
0: And what are some of the challenges of growing in this climate and in this soil?
8: Look, this soil is obviously very hungry. It lacks a lot of organic material. Um, But again, you know, it's all about rebuilding the soil over over years and um, um, good crop rotations. Um, Obviously, you can also get extreme weather. Um, You can get very, very cold conditions and you can get very, very hot conditions. Um, but having said that, garlic's a pretty hardy crop. And if you marry up the right variety for the right area, you're halfway there.
0: During the trial, some centre farm workers, including Sabrina, had the opportunity to visit the Garlic Australia headquarters in Mildura. There, Sabrina saw her own garlic that she grew, boxed and ready for the supermarket shelf.
15: When they, I was the first, second garlic here... And we went to that place, that um, factory, and they told us that this garlic belonged to you.
17: And that made me happy.
0: Sabrina and Tisha and the other Alikurung workers are eager to sell their produce around the country.
17: Maybe around
0: the world, maybe too. How does that make you feel? Proud. Um, It's proud. Very proud. Yeah.
1: That's all women, Tisha Corbett and Sabrina Kelly ending that report by Victoria Ellis on the garlic farm in Central Australia, getting garlic in August. Fantastic. That is our Country Hour for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online. Catch you after midday tomorrow.